Hey, everyone. Welcome back this week to Listen For Real. I'm Jennifer Brown, and I am really jacked about today's subject because it is a complete departure from anything I have ever discussed on this podcast. And I think if this is the antidote to the echo chamber, a place where we get our mind expanded to what is possible or to concepts we've never considered before, this is that place today because I'm here with a new friend and colleague that I'm super excited to introduce you to. And she is Dr. Tamu Green. Tamu, I'm going to have you tell them a little bit about yourself, but we are going to talk guys about someone who is very much a pioneer and I don't know if you like that term, but it really struck me that this is important work, what you're doing with regard to taking on something that is tobacco oriented. I think of what that even means and the foothold this has in our economy, in our culture, and taking on something really revolutionary like tobacco and essentially eliminating it for that next generation and having the vision of a tobacco-free generation is a game changer. And so I would love for you to give everyone a little sense of who you are, because this is not actually all that you do, and but it is something you've been doing for quite a while and you've been very active in and you could speak to for sure. So mm-hmm. will you just say hello, let everyone know a little bit about you. And if you would, I would love if you gave a little bit of an origin story. How did this even come about? I think 20 or so years ago is where some of this began in 2000 or 2002, I believe. Mm-hmm. Could you give a little bit of an origin story? Or maybe it was that story from when you were a teenager. Would you talk mm-hmm. about that and just mm-hmm. let everyone know how wonderful you are? <laughs> that was an awful lot, Jennifer. Thank you so much. Um <laughs> So a little bit about myself, let's see. Um, Well, I'm Tamu and I, uh, well, I thought that I was going to be a school teacher, um, but it turned out that I started working with teenagers when I was um, doing my undergraduate studies in sociology at UC Santa Cruz way back when. And a friend of mine, pulled me into a um, into a program that she was working in, which was a alternative school for middle school and high school age students who were already in treatment and recovery. So if you can imagine 13 year olds and 14 year olds and 15 year olds who are already in treatment and recovery from alcohol and other drugs. And Yeah, so she pulled me in because she had some of these younger students who were really intimidated to turn in any writing projects, any projects that involved writing because uh, they had poor writing skills. And she really just wanted me to work with them on language arts. And so I started working with these students and really, really found that I just loved them. And so I took this kind of departure from the career that I thought I was going to have as an an elementary school teacher and wound up working with teenagers and specifically working with teenagers around substance abuse prevention. So I was not 
as interested in the treatment and recovery side of things because I really saw that as being too late. I didn't want to wait until kids had already gone down that road. I really wanted to see what can we do in advance? What can we do to prevent kids from going down that road so that they can really live fulfilled lives, that they can really pursue you know, big dreams and not have the stumbling blocks of substance abuse. So that was really how I started getting involved in doing substance abuse prevention work in Sacramento and in the Bay Area, where I worked at the Youth Leadership Institute. And my career kind of unfolded over time to where I was focusing less on the individual decisions that we could get kids to make, you know, the whole just say no era, to the larger kinds of decisions that we were making as a society in terms of setting up the structures and the conditions in which kids were making those decisions. And so I got really interested in the kinds of um, policies that could um, could be supportive of young people. Uh, and in that work, um, I was encouraged to apply for a fellowship with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And um, it was a new fellowship program that they were doing in the early 2000s called Developing Leadership in Reducing Substance Abuse. So they were selecting um, cohorts of just 10 people from around the country each year for four years and doing lots of professional development with them and connecting them with mentors around the country and providing them with funding for their professional development and to do leadership projects. So I applied the first year. I didn't get it. I was pretty devastated. But I dusted myself off and I applied the second year and I did get it. And so in 2001, I joined this fellowship program that turned out to be just life changing for me because it did expose me to this caliber of individuals who were working on substance abuse prevention and treatment from around the country. And just so many ideas and rich, juicy conversations. And I was just able to nerd out, you know, on this passion that I had. So one of the things that we were able to do was to meet with pretty prominent, influential folks in this world. And so you may recall our former U.S. Surgeon uh, General um, C. Everett Coop. And um, he was a part of one of our small, intimate sessions at Dartmouth. And it was, I believe, 2002. And uh, there were the 10 of us meeting with him and uh, having this incredibly provocative conversation. And at that time, he was really bemoaning all of the marketing swag that was um, being sent out by the tobacco industry to folks to really get that um, that brand loyalty and um, you know get folks excited about their tobacco use. 
And, you know, he was pretty concerned about it. And so we were having this whole conversation. And I remember um, asking him, you know, if tobacco products were put onto the market today, would the government approve them? And he said, absolutely not. You know, knowing what we know about the harms of tobacco, about cigarettes, we would never approve that today. And I said, well, if that's the case, why can't the government just say, we're done with this now? We're going to ban these products. They're just too dangerous. We didn't have the information in the past, but we do have the information now. And he said, people are so incredibly addicted to nicotine that they would riot in the streets. For sure. So I, so I really contemplated that. And I contemplated it um, with my now former husband, um, Paul Nolfo. And he and I came up with this idea around grandfathering in smokers and people of legal age to purchase um, cigarettes that let them have that ability um, to purchase those cigarettes, but don't bring that into the next generation of of young people, that they don't need that burden. Um, And so that was the origin of this idea that we could essentially raise the legal age to purchase tobacco products by one day every day. So if, for example, this policy, you know, were to go into effect on January 1st, 2021, and the legal smoking age is 21 years old, then if you are um, selling tobacco products, you look at someone's ID, and if they were born in um, 1900-something, then go ahead and sell them those products. But if they were born in 2000 something, no, they don't get them. And so it makes it really easy also from a monitoring perspective that you don't have to do a bunch of calculations. You just have to know what the cutoff date is. Uh, So that was the origin of this idea and kind of simplistically what this idea is. And hopefully I answered your question, Jennifer. Well, it does. And I think it's fascinating and ingenious in that, again, you're not taking away anyone who already is a smoker, they're right, or even who's already 22 years old, let's say, and already of age. Maybe they haven't started smoking, but yes, they can go ahead and decide to start. But I love this idea that you you don't ever come to an age where if you're of this younger generation, which is clearly everyone understands the methodology in big tobacco is to make sure that we have uh, we have younger people who eventually mm-hmm. take up the habit because that's right. Ultimately, the older ones will die, many from smoking. And so the only way to stay in business is to have new customers. Yeah, my understanding is that they need to get about 7,000 new smokers every year so that they can replenish the ones who are, oh, did I say every year? Every day in order to replenish the ones who are passing away. So if you can imagine that, you have to actually attract 
7,000 new people to take up this per day just in order to maintain status quo with your business because you're killing, because you're killing off your customers. Right. And so, yeah, I, I love this. And, and so let me be clear, because I want to make sure people understand this isn't like raising the age. It's about that. There's a certain generation that never can buy it. It's just Mm -hmm. simply they don't get to buy it unless they go somewhere very different. And so this is now um, Brookline, Massachusetts, if I understand Mm -hmm. correctly, is the one place where this is in effect, went into effect in September, September, correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that I find interesting and, and sets a precedent, hopefully, to see more people and more communities embrace this. And I thought about it from the standpoint of people in my family who I knew, both of which are gone, both of which from smoking, but my aunt and cousin were ferocious smokers. And yeah. I will never forget my cousin saying, I would never want someone to start this habit. It right. is the 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 addiction level trying to quit is so painful is so awful i remember she used to say that when she didn't have one she felt like spiders were crawling all over her body that's what happened with her everyone manifests symptomology different but that was her and, and until she had a cigarette that feeling would not go away she said it's terribly addictive of course we all know that we and know that it's, it's as a as addictive, if not more addictive mm-hmm. than heroin and cocaine. hundred percent. And I think, and I'm curious if you know, if there's any research or, or, or surveys on this, I believe smokers would be for this because they don't, they know they're insulated yes. to it. And yeah. most of them probably go, yeah, I wouldn't want my kid to start. I wouldn't want my grandchild to start. That's right. Is that accurate? That is accurate. So mm-hmm. in... Um, the surveying that's been done on this idea um, that it has a support rate in the 70 percentage, you know, it's like between 70 and 79%. Um, And within that is also uh, smokers and young people uh, that folks are very supportive of this policy just off of hearing it. Like they're kind of you know, knee-jerk reaction is, yes, why would we have people start off this addiction when needlessly, when they don't need to? You know, we know that when most people who pick up the habit of smoking do so um, in adolescence or early adulthood, and most of them, when they do start smoking, assume that they will be able to quit smoking. Um, But unfortunately, when folks do start trying to quit smoking, so about two thirds of folks do try to stop smoking. Um, only about 10% of them are successful. And that's because exactly what you said, Jennifer, that it's the nicotine is just so horribly addictive. And so why do we want to promote giving to young people a product that we know is going to control them that they're not going to be able to control? Well, you know, what also comes to mind is I was trying to think, well, who would be against this, right? Obviously big tobacco, that's as obvious as it gets. I know in Brookline, there was a a number of store owners who said, you know, your luminary ability to, to make an income, this is a key product we need to be able to sell. Okay. But isn't there also an entire industry 
built around the response to addiction. Mm. And so while they're there to help you quit smoking or because, and I, the reason I asked this is because I was thinking about big alcohol and I was, uh, I'd seen a documentary recently and they were talking about there's entire industries around getting sober around, um, rehab around, you name it, even non-alcoholic beverages. There's, there's a whole industry around that. So while we, we, say, oh, we don't want tobacco sold and we don't support or, or, or get in bed with big tobacco. In a lot of ways, I wonder if that's something you're, you're dealing with as well in this area. Is that coming up? Um, I don't know about those, about the industry that supports tobacco cessation. Right. Um, I, other than that, you know, I've been trying to get this idea off the ground for 20 years. And during that time, I spoke with a lot of folks that I assumed would be supportive and um, who essentially had their missions around tobacco control. Mm -hmm. And it was striking to me how many folks came up with excuses to not be supportive. I mean, I have a whole long list of them. I have them documented, <laughs> the, all of the excuses that folks came up with to just say, mm, no, I'm not going to get Even though they're that. around tobacco control, that doesn't, because the reason I asked this and I want to flush this out a bit is couldn't this apply to so many things? I don't care if it's sure tobacco, yep. sugar, food, yes. meat, uh, yes. guns, yes. right? Right. There, there's all these, um, uh, le- I want to say leeches, <laughs> other industries or, or businesses that benefit from a larger host animal. <laughs> that benefit from a larger host animal. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's great. Yes, I do. So this is, so really. It's like parasitic. I, right. It's like parasitic. Exactly. And so part of me goes, so is is the bigger battle the mindset shift? Because you're saying over 20 years you have dealt with people who are about tobacco control and would seemingly on its face be in support of this grandfathering in mm-hmm. certain age and smokers and never allowing smokers be- below that age to ever buy it mm-hmm. and start the habit in the first place. One would think they'd be for it. So is this about an, a, the unwillingness to expand the mindset? Is it futility? Mm-hmm. And they just go, it's, it's futile. Um, this is too big. It's never going to change it. What do you think on that? I think it's all of that. You know, I think that we get into our traditions of how we do things and it's hard for us to imagine doing things radically different. Um, I think um, we establish ourselves as being needed in a certain way. And then it's hard to imagine not being needed in that way. Um, I think it's really scary to be on the forefront of a big idea. And, you know, we're always looking for best practices. And so if it doesn't fit neatly, 
into one's idea of a best practice. Like, well, this hasn't been done in exactly this way before. Um, that, uh, you know, folks have a hard time trying to imagine um, putting themselves out like that. So, and people find other priorities as well, you know, that, um, which is, it's hard for me to imagine, especially when it comes um, to this particular topic, um, because tobacco is such a huge issue. You know, you talked about two people close to you in your own life um, who unfortunately were taken by cigarettes, but think about it, that cigarettes kill more people each year than AIDS, heroin, crack, cocaine, alcohol, car accidents, fire, and murder combined. My gosh. So, so can we you know, take just, a knee for a minute? Right. Oh, wait, wait, wait. And there's more. So here, so here we are devastated by COVID-19. I get chills when I think about the number of deaths that we've had by COVID-19, right? So since 2020, COVID deaths as of February 14th, so just a few days ago, COVID deaths account for 5.8 million deaths globally. I mean, think about all of that suffering, all of that loss. And now I want you to consider that annually tobacco, tobacco causes more than 7 million premature deaths globally, just annually. So not the whole COVID phenomenon that, you know, we're coming up on. Every year, year after year, year right. after year. Year after pandemic. year. Yeah. Right. And so I, I don't want to sound callous about any of these other devastating losses, but even I remember in 2001, when the towers came down, the twin towers came down and the devastation and loss on that day and how we grieved and how we continue to grieve year after year. But my first thought was, oh, that's fewer than the number of people that we're going to lose from tobacco today. Wow. One day. So this is a problem of, you know, enormous proportions and we have the power to do something about it. But back to your question, do people just feel overwhelmed by that? Do they feel like they've just gotten acclimated to the problem because we're so accustomed to tobacco deaths? It's just one of those things that happens. Is it that we have gotten um, desensitized because of the rhetoric around this is my right, you know, I should be able to do this if I want to, to myself and other people shouldn't be able to tell me what to do with my body. I'm, you know, I, I imagine it's probably all of that. Yeah. It, ooh, it, it, it begs a few questions. So my first thought, as you were saying that true, 
or there's someone who can say, look, they have the freedom to choose that. And if that's how they choose to die potentially or, or, or hamper their life, mm-hmm. uh, that's yeah, right. Choice. Because in addition to the deaths in the U S we've got 34.1 million adults who currently smoke and more than 16 million of them are living with a smoking related disease. So it isn't just the death, it's the emphysema, the heart disease, you know, all of that restricted capacity. Yes. So there are unfortunately lots of consequences that come with smoking. There are, and the consequences are not just for the person who chooses to partake. Correct. There are there's just, there's empirical data everywhere for what it does to other people, what it does to healthcare, what costs to this community Um, from a a environmental standpoint. That's right. There's repercussions, et cetera. So it isn't just because I could land on that. It's not just a personal decision. Yeah. Your decision to smoke is going to impact everyone and everything. It will. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, yeah, that's, that's super interesting to me. Now I have one other question that I want to kind of, I want to veer off topic slightly. What does it take when you are someone like you who has been in this battle for over 20 years And it's this slow moving slog, (laughs) but there's progress because you're a human being. And I do think you are amazing and revolutionary, but I'm sure you have moments because we discussed the fact that you have a puppy and it makes you weary. (laughs) So I know you're human and not invincible. How do you, from a mindset, from a heart posture, continue work that sometimes feels like a never ending uphill battle, because I think that's really instructive for all of us. I know it is for me. I, I, I want to understand that more because I think there's something many of us are impassioned about or that we know we believe in and, and it is, it's a hard slog, whatever it is we happen to be facing, but I Mm -hmm. think there's something yeah, you figured out. I wonder. Well, or you might be crying yourself to sleep <laughs> night. In a night. fetal position every night. <laughs> He's gone fetal, and you could say, "Yep, time to take a break." <laughs> um, edit, edit that out, Jen. <laughs> no, we're no, we're good. So, I mentioned that when I was a part of that fellowship program, I had the opportunity to meet all of these really phenomenal thinkers and doers um, around substance abuse prevention and treatment. And one of the people that I met, and I wish that I could remember her name, but I can't, was actually responsible for getting smoking off of airplanes. Do you remember getting on an airplane and you could smoke on the airplane? And I think there may have been a smoking, non-smoking section as if that made a difference on an airplane. Vaguely. I remember it in restaurants where you okay. walk in and they'd say smoking or non. Well, I, I remember vaguely both. recall that from childhood. I don't remember it from airplanes, okay. but what year, what year was that? I was basically? just going to say I'm yeah. 50 years old. And so okay. I remember it as a child. Okay. I'm I rem- 50, I'm 51. So maybe okay. I just don't recollect. Okay. Recommend. Yeah. No, no, no. So I, I for sure remember it as a child. And, um, and I also remember it in, oh my God the smoking, non-smoking restaurants. 
uh, or sections in restaurants as well. I have asthma. This is my little aside. Mm-hmm. I have asthma and I worked my way through college at UC Santa Cruz um, waiting tables and you could still smoke in restaurants at that time. And it was devastating. It was awful. It was absolutely awful. So all of these effects, you know, that are not just personal choices around smoking, but impact other people. So I'm going back though to this woman who pushed through getting smoking off of airplanes because the thought of it, Jen, the thought of it, think about it. You're in an airplane hours in this little contained area with people smoking and no fresh air. So awful, so, so, so awful. But she, it took her many years, many years of advocacy to make this happen. And when she was done with it, and I want to say that it took her like 20 years, maybe it was more than that. When I spoke with her at the time, when she was done with that, she was like, okay, that was so hard. I'm so exhausted. I'm going off to like Grass Valley and I'm going to get a little retirement cabin and I'm done. And I, and that just struck me because I was like, you have to be in this for the long run. You know, when I met her, that was, you know, like 20 years ago. And I thought, if you have a big idea, you better be prepared to put some work into it and hang on to it for a very long time. And if you need to retire when it's said and done, so be it. That's great. Um, so I had that kind of latch on to early on in my career, which was fantastic. Um, but I also, I have not propelled this idea by myself. So Paul and I had this idea 20 years ago, but what was interesting was that someone on the other side of the world actually had this idea not far after we did, not long after we did. Um, and at some point he started publishing on it. His name is uh, Dr. John Barrick. And he started publishing on this idea of the tobacco-free generation. And so we, we actually, um, well, we've never met in person, but, you know, we've met through, I think back in, in the time Skype or something, um, because we realized that we had the same idea and we needed to sort of build forces. And we also brought in other folks. We brought in folks who were really instrumental in pushing through the um, tobacco settlement agreement and uh, folks who are really strong advocates around uh, tobacco control and wanted to be a part of this and had like the, um, the legal expertise to be able to add to it. And so we formed this cadre, this, um, this brain trust essentially um, to work on this. And um, truth be told, I was really instrumental in working with them for a few years. But then when things um, changed pretty dramatically in my life a few years ago, I just kind of walked away from it. Um, and I, I just couldn't, I couldn't really be a part of it um, anymore. And it, it saddened me because I really wanted to see this come to fruition, but I just, I couldn't, I didn't have the time to be able to put into it. Um, and so I was more like an observer and a cheerleader from the sidelines um, for the last few years. And I was so delighted to see the work, you know, that really 
came about. Like I didn't have to be up in the middle of it, that there were other people who were working really, really hard to make this happen. Um, so I think that that's also kind of one of the lessons around how do you do this and self-care and all of that is that you don't do it by yourself. You, you find other people who are also really committed and maybe you tag team and some of you work on it more intensely at some times than at other times. Um, and then the last thing that I really want to say about that is I have very intentionally structured my life to be able to bring into it the kind of bliss that I need in order to do this work. So um, the hours that I work and um, who and what I have in my life, even talking about that puppy with you, um, I think about that as one of these um, spontaneous decisions that I made at the tail end and of December that I did not know that I was going to make, um, getting a puppy. Um, but that is so aligned with how I really just try to operate so that I can have the emotional bandwidth to do this kind of work, as well as the racial equity work that I do, which you and I will talk about at another time. Um, but so that I can have that kind of joy and happiness and levity and you know, to have a puppy, which means that I have to be hanging out in my backyard and, um, you know, playing with him and taking time out of my day. Um, but also that I go to the gym and I go for runs and I have a wonderful partner and amazing friends. And I have a little convertible VW bug that I love to, you know, drive around on, you know, warm spring days like today. And it makes people happy. You know, it's yellow and beautiful. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> right. Um, and so there's like this kind of playfulness that I have integrated into my life um, to, um, to help get through doing work that can sometimes be incredibly hard, you know, where you really do just sit down on the couch and cry. Yeah, I, I'm so, that is so instructive. Everything you just offered, that's instructive for every human being listening. And, and here's why, y'all, we have sometimes really hard but worthy pursuits in front of us, but we have got to be diligent about that self-care and about bringing the things in that delight us so that we not grow, we do not grow weary in doing this good work that is sometimes a really long, difficult journey. And I'm really happy you said that. I am trying to undo and rewire my own brain around that, around work ethic, because my instinct is more, more, more. I should be doing this, this, add this. And you just put your head down and you do more and you add more. And, and what I'm learning is that is not actually the key and is not always what will um, turn the lock and, un and unleash things as far as professionally for me and, and, and personally, it's actually the opposite. I don't, I, right. I can't keep trying to force things and do more. I just get exhausted and then I have less of my best to give to the things I'm doing. And so I'm really having to rework that. And it's such an odd thing to realize that we need to insert beautiful pleasures and goodnesses in our lives. And that that in turn will yield better productivity 
it's a truth and more and more people talk about it and more and more of us are getting it. And that'll, I think that'll create a mental shift in the culture. I think it catches fire just as I'm hopeful things like this, that it's about starting to become, it's normalizing a new way of looking, a new way of thinking. And that's what it's going to be. So back to whether it's tobacco, whether it's alcohol, whether it's work ethic, whether it's the environment, everything. If we look for ways to start to take great care and normalize taking great care of ourselves and other people, I mean, I don't think that's too rose-colored glasses, Pollyanna, to envision and and cast that vision. And and that's uh, let me. And I know I'm kind of going on a, a a trail for a minute, but I think it's so important. I teach people and work with people to not leave their voices buried, to not leave an idea on the table but to boldly assert themselves. That's so much of the work I do from a communication standpoint. And that that offers invitation and permission for more people to do the same. So now let's take an idea like a tobacco-free generation and that casting of that vision and the, the setting of the intention and the seeing something possible in the future and more people being able to see it And that becoming very normal. I think what we need to keep remembering is that the more we do these things, these good things and normalize it, it will catch fire and take flight. Mm-hmm. Right. So I know That's I'm kind absolutely- of going off into an S- maybe an S. No. And I think it, and I think it is, I think we're seeing more and more people changing the work culture, changing yeah. their relationship to the work culture. And actually something that you said kind of caught my attention where you said, if I take care of myself, I'll be more productive. And Mm -hmm. I'm working to challenge my thoughts about that. I'm reading a book right now called How to Do Nothing. Mm -hmm. And it's something about the attention economy. I don't remember what the tagline is, but something about the attention economy. And in it, the author says, essentially, Like when we are taking care of ourselves, when we are getting out of this busyness, um, that it should not be in service of being more productive, Mm -hmm. but it really should be in service of um, being able to then put our attention to things that really matter. So what are the big ideas? What are the big movements that really matter that we can put our attention to once we have kind of quieted down, once we have made space for ourselves um, to not be so busy. Mm. Let's take a quick break and delve a little more into this. We'll be right back. Sounds great.
are back. Okay, so we we just talked about this idea of casting a vision or or, or what what are we moving towards and that concept that what we move towards or what we what we put our sights on and what we fix our mind on will grow and will expand. That's right. Okay, we we can we see that in our own. I mean, you can look at it in just the idea of reticular activation in an individual who, you know, a woman is pregnant, suddenly she sees every pregnant woman she's ever seen. <laughs> Somebody buys a new yellow VW bug and suddenly they see every although there are a few, every <laughs> yellow VW convertible bug. But if you're suddenly you have an awareness of it, once you have an awareness of it, you're more um, your that particular activation kicks in and you observe it more mm-hmm. in the surroundings. Mm-hmm. So the same thing, if we think about a vision, whether it's for anything, but in this case, a tobacco-free generation, it is about having conversations like these. And it is about thinking with And I don't believe this is something where we should be going, okay, this is the enemy and we've got to convert them to somebody who might be reluctant about this or oppose this idea. I think it's about deeply listening to one another and trying to understand, well, what what is their fear Mm -hmm. around it or what's going on for them? That's right. I'm not big on, and this is where I've changed. I used to be one who would cling to certainty. And therefore what I did was I would swing to an extreme and go, well, this is where I must land because I got to really plant my flag. And if I'm a fence sitter, that is somehow bad. And I've got to really go to the extreme and then plant my flag and stand for what I stand for. Mm -hmm. I'm now understanding um, that is not necessarily always the best way. And in listening to other people and having deep conversations and trying to understand their perspective, their lived experience, their worldview, it really does help. So with all of that said, when you think about people who are reluctant to something like the proposals and policies that we see happening now, what's that reluctance and how do we... Um, engage with everyday people who are reluctant, whether it's something like this uh, that you're proposing and that Brookline is already doing in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What what do you think on that? Well, I do think that it's a matter of listening to folks' concerns and seeing how we can um, build on solutions that they have. So, for example, uh, with the Brookline, um, with Brookline leading the way, they're this tiny little town. Uh, the merchants there are crying foul because they're saying, "Hey, wait a second! Um, tobacco consumers um, who are now underage by our standards um, can't purchase for me, but they can go not very far away and they can purchase, and so that puts us at a disadvantage." Um, and so one of the things that we should be paying attention to is, is this a policy that should be um, more global? Is this a more universal? Is this a policy that really should happen in all jurisdictions? 
And if that is the case, then you don't have one merchant saying, I'm at a disadvantage from other merchants because of this policy. Um, personally, I think that that would be a wonderful way to go. And the merchants themselves actually say that too. Like, okay, well, if we level the playing field in that way, then I really won't have a problem with this, right? Um, and so I think it's a matter of us building on the momentum that has been started in Brookline and really pushing it out um, across the country. And it's actually not just our country. Uh, you know, New Zealand has actually taken this on, which I absolutely love that they um, have leadership in this area. And it is as a result of advocates who have been behind working behind the scenes for years in New Zealand. Um, and so it's not like any of these policies happen just by accident, but it, there's really a lot of intentionality behind it because as we know, big tobacco has lots of influence, lots of resources. And so um, they're not gonna let anything get past them without a really fantastic fight. Uh, so I do think, once again, it's a matter of like actually listening to what folks' concerns are and seeing how we can address them. Um, one of the reasons why the grandfathering in proposal um, was conceived of in the way that it was is so that there would not be an immediate impact to merchants, to anyone actually in the tobacco industry from the growers, you know, to the, the end vendors um, so that folks could have time bit by bit to phase into other industry work. So being able to sell other products or, you know, provide other services, but that it wouldn't just be an um, immediate drop in their, um, you know, in their incomes. Um, and so that means putting some attention into so as we are transitioning folks out of the tobacco industry, what are we transitioning them into? And are we putting resources into making that happen? And I think that that's a humane, humane way of approaching this, um, that I don't want us to get set up as um, you work in tobacco and so you're the bad guy. It's like, no, we're, we're all in, <laughs> on this planet together and we have to figure this out together. That's right. That's right. I... I think about what's possible. There's a lot that's possible when you think about something like this. One could look at it as a Herculean effort. It, 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 it's definitely got that aspect to it. But it also just speaks to me of what's possible in a number of arenas. So do you see this beautiful concept now? Little, I, I picture little fingerlings of of influence that then creates a positive shift in other, whether it's industries, other areas of culture, other, other areas of behavior. Do you see the tentacles of this reaching beyond just tobacco and a tobacco-free, well, it's not just a tobacco-free <laughs> generation. It is not a just, do you know, do you know what I'm asking? Well, I think I'm that, hopeful by this. yes, I mean, one of the things is that when you do achieve a Herculean effort, then you look around and you say, oh, well, what's next? We did that. So what's next? Mm -hmm. um, 
And so I love that idea. And, uh, and I think in, we've even gotten to this point, you know, based on other Herculean efforts of the past, you know, that have been done. And so, you know, we stand on the shoulders of folks who have actually done really tremendous work and been up against huge industries um, where the odds were stacked against them and the cultural norms were stacked against them. And, you know, all of that, um, that uh, it does make me wonder, so what could we do if we were able to throw off the shackles of this death industry that is bringing down millions and millions of people every year. What would we do? What could we do? What would we aspire? Would it be in the arts? Would it be in climate change? You know, would it be in revamping the incarceration system? What could we do if we were able to completely shift our direction from something that we have essentially just taken for granted now for so long that this industry has the right to kill us and our kids? Well, and I think about the power they wield and imagine that used in other ways. Yeah. That money, that influence, that reach, that, that ingenuity. Mm. Oh my God, the ingenuity. Mm-hmm. The, if you look at everything driving that engine, imagine that same force put yeah. towards something else. Well, I was wondering, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was wondering when we were looking at being able to get out, um, vaccines and, you know, for COVID, it's like, what is, what production lines do we have and um, marketing? And right. When you talk about being able to get into niche marketing and understand what's going on with um, very vulnerable populations and speak directly to them in a way that they respond, you know, is that something that can be done around, um, uh, educating around COVID-19 and providing vaccinations and boosters and um, PPE and all of that. Yeah, we could absolutely capitalize on this infrastructure that's there. uh, And that would be incredible. And maybe set us up for, you know, the next crisis down the line. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, in a lot of ways, I was thinking about the growers. I was thinking about different people that are at play a role in let's just use again, tobacco. I I don't want to see those families not eat. I don't want to see. So yeah, this isn't a vindictive, vindictive, right. Uh Endeavor. And I think there's so much that's possible here if we're willing to expand. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Right. I, the, the crazy part of me goes, oh, tobacco could still be grown. Those people could still have a business. And then we use it to, f- I don't know, fuel, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I, I'm literally pulling stuff out of the air right now. <laughs> but I mean, crazier stuff has happened where you see one industry or one product completely turned on its head completely, yeah. and becomes used for something entirely different. 
Well, my understanding is that my understanding is that tobacco is actually incredibly depleting for our soil. Mm. And so, yes, imagine if we were to not, (laughs) if we were not to plant something that was actually nourishing and rejuvenating for our soil. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes. Like that would be incredible. There's so many wins, right? Yeah. Oh, I'm, thank you. Thank you for just taking time to a explain this to me and expand my paradigm here. I, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about what's possible, not just at, in looking forward to a tobacco-free generation, but in what this can mean on so many levels and in so many arenas. This has great possibility because, again, the minute we open our mind to something like this, we open our mind to, oh, and what about that? And what about that? That's right. I love I love those kinds of conversations. So I'm grateful that you were willing to dig into this with me. I know we have more uh, podcast recordings ahead, y'all. I'm giving you a, a really um, beautiful sneak peek that there's going to be another <laughs> recording in the weeks to come on the idea of, well, I, I'm going to surprise you. <laughs> let's tell them a little. No, let's, that, that, that's not fair. Tell them a little bit about what you do with equity and wellness. Would you just share really quick? Let's give them a little um, dangled carrot. Because I'm well, super excited about that. I have a firm called the Equity and Wellness Institute, a consulting firm. And we work with communities all over that are really looking at how to build primarily racial equity um, in their communities. So whether that is in their organizations or their institutions, uh, but how is it that they can hold up a mirror to see what's really happening and do an assessment of what needs to change and look at what can be done, what can change to bring about more equity in their communities. So that is that is the work that we do. So we're going to dig into that. And, and one thing I love to dig into, and I look forward to that, is, is stuff that isn't very comfortable. But again, I believe we got to normalize, we've got to normalize talking about things that are not always comfortable. And delving into it and looking at it piece by piece. That's right. And trying to understand. And so I'm very excited about that conversation ahead. That's that's one that's near and dear to my heart in all that I'm trying to understand and learn these last few years. So we will get together again. Y'all, I'm glad you are here. Thank you for listening for real, for just being open. I, I love you as my friends and audience because you just go, okay, you kind of put some trust when you hit play to go, <laughs> oh gosh, I hope Jen's bringing something of value. And I sure hope I am. I believe I am. Um, so it, thanks for delving into this with us and joining our conversation and, and just thinking about what's possible and what's ahead, whether it's this topic or another. I just believe the more we think about those things and explore them and then give them voice, don't leave the ideas on the table. Oh, so many things can change. Mm -hmm. Things that one would have said, never, that's not possible. 
very much possible. So thank you. Glad you were here. We'll see you all next time. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Awesome. (laughs) Listen for Real is produced in Rockland, California and is edited and mixed with the help of Mark Edward. Our music entitled Zero is written and performed by Shannon Curtis. If you believe conversations like these belong in the world, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. And even better, share it with someone else as a real conversation starter. We'll see you next time.